6. Mechanical impurities from the water, others, while they work well at first, are exceedingly likely to become clogged, when the tendency is to punch at them to make them work faster, thus either poking a hole through them or cracking the filter shell, so that a stream of water flows steadily through, just as impure as when it entered, private filters, like boiling water, are only temporary ways of meeting conditions which ought not to be allowed to exist at all in civilized communities, or in your own homes. A score of court decisions in all parts of the world have now held that the water company is legally responsible for all avoidable pollution of public water supplies, and nine-tenths of pollutions are avoidable. Footnotes, these gases and salts are eagerly sucked up by the roots of plants, so that the soil bacteria are our best friends, changing poisonous decaying things into harmless plant foods. They are the chief secret of the fertility of a soil, and the more there are of them the richer a soil is. This makes 14 times as many deaths from typhoid in proportion to the population as occur in Germany, New York City, for instance, goes 40 miles up into the hills to the Great Croton Reservoir for its water supply, and as this is proving insufficient, is preparing to go 95 miles up into the Rimapo Hills to secure control of the whole countryside for a permanent source of supply. Portland, Oregon, nearly 20 years ago with then a population of some 75.000, built an aqueduct 60 miles up into the mountains to a lake on the side of Mount Hood, and has reaped the advantages of its foresight ever since, in a low death rate and a rapid growth 200.000 in 1910, as well as a financial profit on its investment. Los Angeles, California, is preparing to build an aqueduct 130 miles and tunnel to mountain ranges in order to reach an inexhaustible supply of water. Of late, currents of electricity are passed through the water setting free oxygen or ozone which make the purifying of it much more rapid and complete. It island however, often considered safer to pass the water through still another filter bed, consisting of layers of charcoal, which has the power of gathering oxygen in its pores, to attack and oxidize, or burn up, the remaining impurities in the water. A sort of scum forms over the surface of the last and finest bed of sand or charcoal, and if the scum is not too frequently removed, though it makes the filtering slower, the water comes out purer. On examining this scum, we find it to consist of a thick mat of our old friends, the purifying bacteria of the soil, so that the last step of our artificial filtration is simply an imitation of nature's great filter bed. Several streams emptying into the Ohio River from a thickly settled region are said to be actually pumped out into waterworks systems, used for drinking, washing, and manufacturing, and run back into the river again through sewers by the different cities along its banks, at such frequent intervals that every drop of water in them passes through waterworks systems and sewers three times before it reaches the mouth of the stream. Chapter X Beverages, Alcohol, and Tobacco The Popularity of Beverages for some curious reason, the habit has grown up of taking a large part of the six glasses of water that we require daily in the form of mixtures known as beverages. These beverages are always much more expensive than pure water, are often quite troublesome to secure and prepare, have little, or no food value, are of doubtful value even in small amounts, and injurious in large ones. Why they should ever have come into such universal use, in all races and in all ages of the world, is one of the standing puzzles of human nature. They practically all consist of from 90 to 98 percent of water, the food elements that may be added to them being in such trifling amounts as to be practically of no value. They serve no known full purpose in the body, 
save as a means of introducing the water which they contain, and yet mankind has used them ever since the dawn of history. We have no natural appetite for beverages. It is a most striking fact that, although these beverages have been drunk by the race for centuries, we have never developed an instinct or natural appetite for them. No child ever yet was born with an appetite or natural liking for beer or whiskey, and very few children really like the taste of tea or coffee the first time, although they soon learn to drink them on account of the sugar and cream in them. Thus, nature has clearly marked them off from all the real foods on our tables, showing that they are not essential to either life or health, and that they are absolutely unnecessary, and almost always harmful in childhood and during the period of growth. If no child ever drank alcohol until he really craved it, as he craves milk, sugar, and bread and butter, there would be no drunkards in the world. Our other food instincts have shown themselves worthy to be trusted. Why not trust this one, and let these beverages, especially alcohol, absolutely alone? Statistics from the alcoholic wards of our great hospitals show that of those who become drunkards, nearly 90% begin to drink before they are 20 years old. Of that 90%, over two-thirds took their first drink, not because they felt any craving for it, or even thought it would taste good, but because they saw others doing it, or thought it would be a manly thing to do, or were afraid that they would be laughed at if they didn't. Whatever vices and bad habits our natural appetites, and so-called animal instincts, may lead us into, drunkenness is not one of them. The striking hint on the part of nature, that alcoholic beverages are unnecessary, is fully confirmed by the overwhelming majority of hundreds of tests which have been made in the laboratory, showing clearly that, while these beverages may give off trifling amounts of energy in the body, their real effects and the sole reason for their use are their stimulating, or their discomfort deadening narcotic effect, and the more carefully we study them, the heavier we find the price that has to be paid for any temporary relief or enjoyment which they may seem to give, tea, coffee, and cocoa the weakest and most commonly used of these beverages or amusement foods, are tea, coffee, and cocoa. These have an agreeable taste, mildly stimulate the nervous system, and, when used in moderation by adults, seldom do much harm to a small percentage of individuals who are specially sensitive to their effects. They seem to act as mild poison foods, much in the same way as strawberries, cheese, or lobsters do to others. Tea is made from the green leaves of a shrub growing in hilly districts in China, Japan, and southern India. The finer and more delicately flavored brands are from the young leaves, shoots, and flowers of the plant, while the coarser and cheaper are from the old leaves, stalks, and even twigs the latter containing the most tannin, which, as we shall see, is the most injurious element in tea. Coffee is made from the seeds of a cherry-like berry growing upon a shrub, or low tree, on tropical hillsides. The bulk of our supply comes from South America, and is known as, Rio, coffee, from Rio Janeiro, the port in Brazil from which most of it is shipped, that from the East Indies is known as Java, and that from Arabia as Mocha, though these last two are now but little more than trade names for certain finer varieties of coffee, no matter where grown, cocoa and chocolate are made from the bean-like seeds of a small tree growing in the tropics and, in cake, or solid, form, contain considerable amounts of fat and usually sugar and vanilla, which have been added to them to improve their flavor, as, however, only a teaspoonful or so of the powdered cocoa, or chocolate, goes to make a cupful. The actual food value of cocoa or chocolate, unless made with milk, 
is not much greater than that of tea or coffee with cream and sugar. They contain less caffeine than either tea or coffee, but are liable to clog rather than to increase the appetite for other foods. Effects of tea, coffee, and cocoa. Though the flavors of tea, coffee, and cocoa are so different, they all depend for their effect upon a spicy tasting substance, called caffeine from its having been first separated out of coffee. The caffeine of tea is sometimes called dine, and that of cocoa theobromine, but they are all practically the same substance. Part of the taste of these beverages is due to the caffeine, but the special flavor of each is given by spicy oils and other substances which it contains. Caffeine acts as a mild stimulant both to the nervous system and brain, and to the heart, as is shown by the way in which tea or coffee will wake us up or refresh us when tired, or, if drunk too late at night, keep us from going to sleep, if used in large amounts, especially if taken as a substitute for food. Tea and coffee upset the nervous system and disturb the heart, and produce an unwholesome craving for more. Illustration, a milk station in a city park. Many cities have established such stations, where people can buy, for a cent or two, a drink that is far better than soda water or any other beverage. Their chief value lies in the hot water they contain, which has been sterilized by boiling, while its heat assists the process of digestion and in the fact that their agreeable taste sometimes gives us an appetite and enables us to eat more of less highly flavored foods, like bread, crackers, potatoes, or rice, than we would without them. They are, also, usually taken with cream, or milk, or sugar, which are real foods and bring their fuel value up to about half that of skimmed milk, so far as they stimulate the appetite and increase the amount of food eaten. They are beneficial but when taken as a substitute for real food, they are most injurious. A cup of coffee, for instance, makes a very poor breakfast to start the day on, for although it gives you a comforting sense of having eaten something warm and satisfying, it contains very little real food, and soon leaves you feeling empty and tired, just as an engine would give out if you put a handful of shavings into its firebox, and expected it to do four hours work on them. The most disturbing effects of tea and coffee upon the digestion are due to the tannin which they contain if boiled too long, especially in the case of tea. This tannin, fortunately, will not dissolve in water except by prolonged boiling or steeping, so that if tea is made by pouring boiling water over the tea leaves and pouring it off again as soon as it has reached the desired strength and flavor, and coffee by being just brought to a boil and then not allowed to stand more than 10 or 15 minutes before use. No injurious amounts of tannin will be found in them. Tea, made by prolonged stewing on the back of the stove, owes its bitter, puckery taste to tannin, and is better sweet for tanning leather than for putting into the human stomach. Boys and girls up to 15 or 16 years of age are much better off without tea, coffee, or cocoa, for they need no artificial stimulants to their appetites, while at the same time their nervous systems are more liable to injury from the harmful effects of overstimulation. If the beverages are taken at all, they should be taken very weak, and with plenty of milk and cream as well as sugar. Alcohol How alcohol is made. The most dangerous addition that man has ever made to the water which he drinks is alcohol. It is made by the action of the yeast plant on wet sugar or starch a process called fermentation. Usually the sugar or starch is in the form of the juice of fruits, or as a pulp, or mash, made from crushed grains like barley, corn, or rye. As the spores of this yeast plant are floating about almost everywhere in the air, all that is usually necessary is to let some fruit juice or grain pulp stand at moderate warmth, exposed to the air, when it will begin to sour, 
or ferment. Wine. When the yeast plant is set to a work in a tub or vat of grape juice, it attacks the fruit sugar contained in the juice, and splits it up into alcohol and carbon dioxide, so that the juice becomes bubbly and frothy from the gas. When from 7 to 15 percent of alcohol has been produced, the liquid is called wine. It contains, besides alcohol, some unchanged fruit sugar, fruit acids, and some other products of fermentation known as ethers and aldehydes, which give each kind of wine its special flavor, beer, ale, and cider. If the yeast germ be set to a work in a pulp or mash of crushed barley or wheat, the starch of which has been partly turned into sugar by malting, it breaks up the sugar into alcohol and carbon dioxide. When it has brewed enough of the starch to produce somewhere from 4 to 8 percent of alcohol, then the liquid, which still contains about 3 or 4 percent of a starch sugar called maltose, is called beer, or ale. It is usually flavored with hops to give it a better taste and make it keep better. If the same process be carried out in apple juice, we get the well-known hard cider with its biting taste, whiskey, brandy, and rum. When left to itself, the process of fermentation in most of these sugary or starchy liquids will come to a standstill after a while, because the alcohol, when it reaches a certain strength in the liquid, island like all other toxins, or poisons produced by germs, a poison also to the germ that produces it. The yeast bacteria probably produce alcohol as a poison to kill off other germs which compete with them for their share of the sugar or starch. So even the origin of this curious drug food shows its harmful character. We should hardly pick out the poison produced by one germ to kill another germ as likely to make a full and wholesome food. Illustration, proportion of alcohol in light wine and beer in whiskey The liquid shows what part of a tumbler full of each is alcohol. If man had been content to leave this fermentation process to nature, it is probable that many of the worst effects of alcohol would never have been heard of. But these lighter forms of alcoholic drinks did not satisfy the unnatural cravings which they had themselves created. Some people never can leave even bad enough alone. So man, with an ingenuity which might have been much better used, sought a way of getting a liquor which would contain more alcohol than nature, and aided, could be made to brew in it. A little experimenting showed that the alcohol in fermenting juices was lighter than water, so that by gently heating the fermenting mass, the alcohol would evaporate and pass off as vapor, with a little of the steam from the water. Then, by catching this vapor in a closed vessel and pouring cold water over the outside of the vessel, it could be condensed again in the form of a clear, brownish fluid of burning taste, containing nearly 50% of alcohol, instead of the original 5 or 6. This evaporated or distilled mixture of alcohol and water, if made from a mash of corn, wheat, rye, or potatoes, is called whiskey, if from fruit juice, brandy, a similar liquor, made out of fermented rice, is known as arak in India, or sake in Japan, and the liquor made from fermented molasses is called rum, alcohol not a true food, but a drug, the much disputed question as to whether alcohol is a food or not, is really of little or no practical importance. It is quite true, as might be expected, from its close relation to sugar and the readiness, for instance, with which it will burn in an alcohol lamp or stove, that alcohol, in small amounts, is capable of being burned in the body, thus giving it energy. This may give it a certain limited value in some forms of sickness, as, for instance, in certain fevers and infections, when the stomach does not seem to be able to digest food, but here it acts as a medicine rather than as a true food and, like all other medicines, should be used only under skilled medical advice and control.
For practical purposes, any trifling food value it may have is more than offset by its later poisonous and disturbing effects and, secondly, by its enormous expensiveness. The greatest amount of alcohol that could be consumed in the body at all safely would barely supply one-tenth of the total fuel value needed, and if anyone were to attempt to supply the body with energy by the use of alcohol, he would be blind drunk before he had taken one-third of the amount required. From the point of view of expense alone, to take alcohol for food is like killing buffaloes for their tongues and letting the rest of the carcass go to waste, as the Indians and pioneer hunters of the plains used to do. It never has more than a fraction of the food value of the grain or fruit out of which it was made, and the amount of nutriment that it contains costs ten times as much as it would in any of the staple foods. Moreover, when it is taken with an ordinary supply of food, it is found that, for every ounce of alcohol burned in the body, a similar amount of the other food is prevented from being consumed, and probably goes to a waste, owing to the harmful effects of alcohol upon digestion. Therefore, To talk of alcohol as a food is really absurd. The effect of alcohol on digestion. It has been urged by some that alcohol increases the appetite, and enables one to digest larger amounts of food. The early experiments seem to support this claim by showing that alcohol, while diluted, and in moderate amounts, increased appetite and the flow of the gastric juice. When the experiments were carried a little further, however, it was clearly shown that its presence in the stomach and intestines, in such amounts as would result from a glass of beer, or one or two glasses of claret wine with a meal, interfered with the later stages of digestion, so that the later harmful effects overbalanced any earlier good effects, its effect on the temperature of the body, another claim urged in its favor was that it warmed the body and protected it against cold, it ought to have been easy for anyone with a sense of humor to judge the value of this claim by the fact that it was equally highly commended by its users as a means of keeping them cool in hot weather. Its supposed effects in the case of both heat and cold were due to the same fact, it deadened the nerves for a time to whatever sense of discomfort one might then be suffering from, but made no change whatever in the condition of the body that caused the discomfort. Any drug which has this deadening effect on the nerves is called a narcotic, and it is in this class that alcohol belongs, together with the stronger narcotics, opium, chloroform, ether, and chloral. In fact, it was quickly found in the better school of experience that alcohol, though producing an apparent glow of warmth for the time, instead of increasing our power to resist cold, rapidly and markedly lessens it so that those who drink heavily are much more likely to die from cold and exposure than those who let alcohol alone. Nowadays, Arctic explorers, explorers in the tropics, officers of armies upon forced marshes, and those who have to train themselves for the most severe strains on their powers of endurance, all bear testimony to the fact that the use of alcohol is harmful instead of helpful under these conditions, and that it is not for a moment to be compared to real foods, like meat, sugar, or fat, its effects on working power, then it was claimed that alcohol increased the working power of the body, that more work and better work would be done by men at hard labor, if a little beer, or wine, was taken with their meals, indeed, most of those who take alcohol believe that they work faster and better, and with less effort with it than without it, but the moment that this feeling of increased power and strength was submitted to careful tests in the laboratory and in the workshop, It was found that instead of more being accomplished when alcohol was taken, even in very moderate amounts, less was accomplished by from 6 to 12 percent. The false sense of increased vigor and power was due to the narcotic power of alcohol to deaden the sensations of fatigue and discomfort.
it was discovered long ago, almost as soon as men began to put themselves into training for athletic feats or contests, that alcohol was not only useless, but very injurious. Any champion who, on the eve of a contest, breaks training by taking a drink, knows that he is endangering his record and giving his competitors an advantage over him, its deadening effect. In short, we must conclude that the so-called stimulating effects of alcohol are really due to its power of deadening us to sensations of discomfort or fatigue. Its boasted power of making men more sociable by loosening their tongues is due to precisely the same effect. It takes off the balance wheels of custom, reserve, and propriety too often of decency, as well. This is where the greatest and most serious danger of alcohol comes in that even in the smallest doses, it begins to deaden us both mentally and morally, and thus lessens our power of control. This loss of control steadily increases with each successive drink until finally the man, completely under the influence of liquor, reaches a stage when he can neither think rationally nor speak intelligently, nor even walk straight or stand upright making the most humiliating and disgusting spectacle which humanity can present. Harmful effects on the body. All doctors and scientists and thoughtful men are now practically agreed, first, that alcohol in excess is exceedingly dangerous and injurious, and one of the most serious enemies that modern civilization has to face, second, that even in the smallest doses, as a deadener of the sense of discomfort, it blinds the man who takes it to the harm it is doing and, as soon as its temporary comforting effects begin to pass off, naturally leads its victim to a resort to it again in increasing doses, in fact, and like a true food which quickly satisfies, the use of alcohol too often creates an appetite that grows by what it feeds on, and is never satisfied, for every natural appetite or instinct, nature provides a check, but she provides none for tastes that must be acquired, the last man to find out that he is taking too much is the drinker himself, taken first to relieve discomfort, its own poisonous after effects create a new and permanent demand for it, The third point on which agreement is almost unanimous among scientists and physicians is that, as will be seen in later chapters, there are a considerable number of diseases of the liver, of the heart and blood vessels, of the kidneys, and of the nervous system, which are produced by, or almost always associated with, alcohol. There are, for instance, three different kinds of alcoholic insanity. It is true that these disease changes most commonly occur in the tissues of those who use alcohol to excess, and it is also probably true that what the alcoholic poison is doing in these cases, is picking out the weak spots in the body and the weaker individuals in the community. Even the strongest and best of us have our little weaknesses of digestion, of nerves, and of disposition that we know of, as well as others that we are not acquainted with. And what is the use of running the risk of having these picked out and made worse in this dangerous and unpleasant manner, just for the sake of a little temporary indulgence? Moreover, while it is admitted that most of these harmful effects of alcohol are produced by its use in excess, it is daily becoming a more and more difficult matter to decide just how much is excess. It certainly differs widely in different individuals, and in different organs and parts in the same body. An amount of alcohol which one man might possibly take without harm may greatly injure another, and its frequent use, though it does not produce the slightest sign of intoxication, or even of discomfort, or headache, may be slowly and fatally damaging the cells of the liver or kidney. In fact, the conviction is growing among scientists that alcohol does the greatest harm in the slow, insidious way without its users realizing it in any way until too late to break the fearful habit. 
it may even be perfectly true that alcohol seriously injures not more than 10 or 15 percent of those who take it in small quantities, but how can you tell whether you, or your liver, or kidney, or nerve cells, belong in the 10 percent or the 90 percent class, on general principles, it would hardly seem worthwhile making the test simply for the sake of finding out, you never can quite tell what alcohol has done to you until the post-mortem after-death examination and then the question will not interest you very much. Its effect upon character, just as alcohol deadens the body and the senses, especially the higher ones so it has a terrible effect upon the mental and moral sides of our natures. The results of the use of alcohol are so well known that it is unnecessary here to either describe or picture them. All that is needed is to keep our eyes open upon the street, and read the police reports. What good effects upon man's better nature has alcohol to show as an offset for this dreadful tendency to bring out the worst and lowest in man? Increasing knowledge of the bad effects of alcohol is decreasing its use. It is most impressive that almost everything we have found out about alcohol in the short time that we have been studying it carefully has been to its discredit. Fifty years ago beer and wine, all over the civilized world, were commonly regarded as foods. Now they are not considered true foods but harmful beverages. Fifty years ago alcohol was believed to improve the digestion and increase the appetite. Now we know that it does neither. It was believed to increase working power, and has now been clearly shown to diminish it. It was supposed to increase the thinking power and stimulate the imagination, and now we know that it dulls and muddles both. Fifty years ago it was freely used as medicine for all sorts of illnesses, both by doctor and patient. It was supposed to stimulate the heart to sustain the strength, to increase the power of the body to resist disease, and to sustain and support life in emergencies. Now we know that practically all these claims are unfounded, and that such value as it has in medicine is chiefly as a narcotic, as a deadener of the sense of discomfort. As a result, it is already used in medicine only about one-fourth as much as it was 50 years ago, and its use is still steadily decreasing. 50 years ago, in this country, in England, and on the continent of Europe, farm laborers and servants living in the house, expected so many pints or quarts of ale or beer a day, as part of their regular food rations, just as they now would expect milk or tea or coffee, it was only a few years ago that the great steamship companies stopped issuing grog, or raw spirits, to the sailors in their employ, as part of their daily ration, because they at last came to realize how harmful were its effects and a score of similar instances could be mentioned, showing that the unthinking and general use of alcohol as a beverage at our tables is steadily and constantly diminishing. Great temperance societies are springing up in this and other civilized countries and are having a powerful influence in showing the harm of the use of alcohol and in inducing people to abstain from using it. This movement is only fairly started, but is being hastened by such practical and important influences as the experience of many of the great business corporations such as railroads, steamship companies, insurance companies, banks, and trust companies, which support the findings of science against alcohol in almost every respect, on account of the manner in which alcohol unconsciously dulls the senses and blurs the judgment. These companies began long ago weeding out from their employ all men who were known to drink to excess, then they began to reject those who were likely to occasionally overindulge, or take it too freely, and now, finally, Many of them, particularly the railway and steamship companies, will not employ except in the lowest and poorest paid classes of their service and will not promote to any position which puts men in charge of human life and limb. 
those who use alcohol in any form or amount, nearly all the captains, for instance, of our great transatlantic liners, whose duties in storm or fog keep them on the bridge on continuous duty for 48, 60, and even 72 hours at a stretch, with thousands of lives depending upon their courage and their judgment, are total abstainers, and while 25 years ago they used to think that they could not go through these long sieges of storm duty without plenty of wine or whiskey, they now find that they are far better off without any alcoholic drink. Another powerful force in the same direction is our insurance companies, practically all of whom now will refuse to insure any man known habitually to use alcohol to excess, because where lists have been kept of their policy holders showing which were users of alcohol and which total abstainers, their records show that the death rate among the users of alcohol is some 20% greater than among the total abstainers. A similar result has also been reached in the companies that insure against sickness whose drinking members average nearly twice as many weeks of sickness during the year as the abstaining ones. So both of these two great groups of business corporations are becoming powerful agencies for the promotion of temperance. Within 50 years from now the habitual use of alcohol will probably have become quite rare. It is already becoming good form among the best people not to drink, and the fashion will spread. As the bad effects of alcohol become more generally understood, tobacco smoking, a senseless habit, Smoking is the curious act of drawing smoke into the mouth and puffing it out again. Why this custom should have become so widespread is even a greater puzzle than is the drinking of alcohol. In civilized countries at least, it is a custom of much more recent growth than drinking, as it was introduced into Europe from America by the early explorers, notably those sent out by Sir Walter Raleigh, as tobacco smoke is neither a solid nor a liquid, but only a gas. No one could even pretend that it is of any value either as food or drink, all that can be said of smoking, even by the most inveterate smoker, is that it is a habit, of no possible use or value to body or mind, and of great possibilities of harm, another singular thing about smoking is that its effects vary so greatly according to the individual who practices it, that scarcely any two smokers can agree as to the exact reason why they smoke, except that in some vague way smoking gives them pleasure, the only thing that they do agree upon is that they miss it greatly,